0: Lord, we come to you tonight expectant, expecting your word to have its perfect work. Lord, you tell us that your word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discern the intent and thoughts of our heart. We get that. You tell us, Lord, that your word never returns empty, but accomplishes all that you desire. And Lord, then we, you talk about us being let out in joy and full of praise in the trees of the fields, clapping their hands and I just get this idea that if we could just listen, we would be so blessed if we act upon it. Lord, you've told us that the things that were written beforehand were written for our learning. And we want to learn. We want to take the warnings that you set before us. But we also, Lord, want to learn of you. Learn who you are. How you work. The way that you feel. What motivates you. What moves you. And and to learn more of your calling on us as well. So, Lord, we recognize there will be times that will be by example, and certainly the Old Testament is full of beautiful examples and challenges of people, Lord, who uh, sometimes really do it right and sometimes really don't. Much like ourselves, I assume. But also, Lord, there is there is this desire inside of us, Lord, to be changed. As we see mistakes, Lord, in other people, may we learn from those and avoid those. As we see demonstrated before us, not only those who've set the pitfalls and fallen in them, but also then, of course, the ramifications of falling in such a pit. And Lord, I thank you. Today we have a better example, but not in everyone. So when we take the exhortations, Lord, and the warnings carefully, May we embrace beyond all things you and uh, and from it, Lord, as we seek to have ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church tonight. Captivate us in your word, and may we have so much fun for every word you lay out before us. So have your way now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel took us from a from an age, from an era, from a season where Israel has now taken the promised land after 430 years of being in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the desert, Israel finally makes their way to the promised land. And as they make their way to the promised land, they went through a season where it was really a very disturbing season, a season like, to be honest, many people who call themselves Christians, and I I can't tell you they are or they aren't. That's not my job. I'm just more concerned about being one myself. But they, they live this kind of demonstrated life where it's God blesses them. And it seems like it's the worst thing God could do, to be honest, because he blesses them and they turn their hearts away from the blesser. And they just stare at the blessings and ultimately they turn their back and their heart on God. And when they do that, they find themselves ultimately seeking out other gods. And when they do that, they find themselves in bondage. Their life gets miserable. And then as their life gets miserable, they cry out to God. He restores them through a deliverer and then starts to bless them. And the process starts all over again. And to be honest, this is, this is the story of many people that I've known in, in my earlier walk with the Lord too. Where there was a time where it just seemed like the worst thing God could do was bless me. Where he could just make me content and healthy and wealthy and wise, so to speak. Because it seems like the better things got circumstantially, the worse things got spiritually. Well, how does that change? That season, by the way, is the season we would call the season of the judges from the book as well. Well, that changes is when Israel finally gets a king. And we leave the season of the judges for a season of kings. And might I say, in that same way, in our lives... When you ask somebody that knows the Lord and makes claim to Christ and they've come forward on an altar call, they've prayed to receive Jesus, how is your walk with the Lord? How is life like? And they're like, well, it's kind of like a roller coaster or like being on a lift. Well, I'm already starting to think that sounds an awful lot like the book of Judges to me. And sometimes what happens is we do this sort of weak sell of God in the sense that he's like, well, God really wants to be your savior and your buddy and your homeboy and somebody to give a high five to and, But we don't get the fact that he's holy and that he's Lord. Because the moment Jesus becomes the Lord of our life and not just the Savior, things take on a radically different hue. They now start to look different because now we're not trying to call the shots and asking God to bless our plans, but now we're throwing ourselves at the feet of the living God who is reinventing us as we speak. And we're asking what his will is. Well, unfortunately, the first king that had been asked for, we went from a season of, of judges to this guy that was sort of, in essence, our first high-profile prophet, excusing Moses because he had a whole lot of other titles we might give him. And that guy's name is Samuel. A, miracle, a miraculous birth from a woman that seemed barren and was barren for quite a while. God intervenes, if you will. And from that, the woman gives birth to several children, but the oldest of them is Samuel, for which he says, if you give me a male child, I'll lend him to you for the rest of this, this life. And and that young man that grows during a time where the nation Israel really has turned their back on the standard and the lordship of God. They're more than happy to receive his blessings. They're more than happy to say anything that God has that involves prosperity or comfort. They well, They love that. But the idea that God says these are the things to veer from and to stay from and don't do this. Well, they're really not interested in that. And, and to be honest. If we're really honest, if we took a look at our hearts, how much of our life is like that? Where it really is, you know, I, I I just really want you to bless me. You know, if you bless me, maybe I'll do some really great things for you. Versus, you know, you're Lord and if you slayed me, I'd still deserve it. Well, There's a humility in that that we don't necessarily like. And Samuel takes us out of the season of Judges as this miraculous kid who is then thrown into the temple at a time when the priest at the time, Eli, has two kids named Puncher and Serpent Mouth. Now, what priest names his kids that? I don't know. I don't personally recommend it. And they really lived out that kind of lifestyle. They were really vile characters. And yet, even in the midst of a time when it seemed like the world around him that was called the, God's world, if you will, the Jewish world, was full of compromise and hypocrisy, full of questionable moral character, full of moral failures to the left and right. It never stopped Samuel from being who he was. And Samuel didn't seek to just make a difference. Samuel sought to be the difference. And I think that that's the big difference. Because he didn't just look and hold up picket signs and talk about how terrible the church was or start websites about how horrible the industries are around them. He sought instead just to be different. And ultimately, he will anoint a king once his kids are supposed to take over. Samuel's old and the people aren't interested in puncher or serpent mouth taking over for dad. So they ask for a king that would make them like the rest of the nations. And one of the common problems of Israel much like ourselves, is that we're busy trying to become more like a world that God is seeking to make us less like. The moment you said yes to Jesus, if you have said yes to the gift of Jesus, and if you haven't, I'll try to make that clear and give you that choice. But if you have said yes to Jesus, according to Ephesians 1.13, the moment you believed, God placed within you His Holy Spirit. And the moment He placed His Holy Spirit inside of you, He started making you different. The way that you see things, your priorities, your value system, your goals, your dreams all start to change because they are at the core of what drives you and therefore God is going to change that. The problem is, is we still have this desire to be wanted and the moment we take our eyes off of God, the moment we take our eyes off of Jesus, well then we want to become like the world and we start compromising to become like it even though God's Holy Spirit inside of us is doing the opposite. So in essence, we're in a war with God who's trying to make us more like him and less like the world, and we're still trying to become more like the world so we're not being the butt of a joke. Well, the nation Israel demonstrates that, and they ask for a king. And the king they get, they want want somebody that will lead them into battle that will represent them, that will look good on a stamp or on a five-pound note. And with that, they pick the guy that that we read that he's great looking and he's tall. Uh, God makes there sort of a compromising end, if you will, in that. And I kind of like that because God starts to speak about tall being handsome. Anyways, sorry, Hugo. Uh, But in that, understand that for a nation that feels small, remember when they went into the Promised Land, they thought they were grasshoppers in comparison to the side of these giants that they had to fight. I could see why they wanted the biggest guy around on the block to head them on. And that really seemed fine and dandy, except that that man was Saul. And that man, Saul, was a man of a fantastic calling, but really did not have the heart consecrated unto him like it should. And might I say, and forgive me for the lengthy introduction, but we kind of need it because the, the chapter kind of picks up rather quickly. It is a simple event and, then, and the response to it. But please hear me on that. If you were to look at the book of Romans, and we talk about the first two chapters being about sin, three through five being about salvation, six through eight then being about sanctification, God setting us apart, I challenge you to look at those chapters six through eight. What you'll find is the whole thing starts with our attitude, our choices about how we deal with sin now. Now that we're his, now that we belong to him, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? Should we just choose to sin at whatever will, because after all, we're not under the law, but under grace? you realize these are choices we need to make. To set us apart, one of the first things that happens is our choices have to be different. Well, with that in mind, unfortunately, Saul ultimately has a few good chapters, if you will. Uh, Saul, for what it's worth, really kind of has his emergence and inauguration in chapters 9 through 12 of 1 Samuel. But then after that, ultimately, it's going to surface. No matter whatever is in your heart, sooner or later, will manifest. You know this because we see that with certain diseases, that they may be inside you for quite a while, and ultimately, sooner or later, they're going to manifest. Now, that doesn't mean you just got infected. Often what that means is it had a time to incubate and germinate inside of you until it finally got to the place where everyone else knew it. Well, unfortunately, that's Saul's heart. His heart was a disease, or at least diseased with a heart that really didn't make God the center of it all, but himself instead. So though he has those nicer chapters, if you will, his inauguration and ultimately his emergence and invitation, that's chapters 9 through 12, from 13 to the end of First Samuel is really Saul's horrible downward fall and death. And we really see that because what happens is God hands him his P45, he fires him. Here's your pink slip and he says... Look at, you know, you've demonstrated through three very clear uh, events. What's what's clear and evident is you're really not the man for the job. People would still vote for you, but you're not my man. I'm looking for a man, and I found him, a man after my own heart, who turns out to be roughly a 14 or 15-year-old kid, the youngest of eight brothers from the tribe of Judah, named David. David means beloved. Unfortunately, Saul as an unconsecrated heart would, has no interest in stepping off the throne that is not rightly his. So Saul will spend that entire time then, from chapters 13 through 31, ultimately chasing after David and trying to wipe out and eliminate the competition. Much like what we see during Jesus' day, who, by the way, wasn't just there to make a difference, but to be the difference, during a time when all of what was called religion around him really had fallen into the toilet. And instead of them repenting, for the most part, though there were certainly priests and scribes and Pharisees who did, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, yet still, for the most part, they would conspire to kill him because what they'd rather do was remove the competition that humbled themselves and repent. By the time that we get to the end of 1 Samuel, that's the last chapter, we do find a couple of very important things, and it is noteworthy. Saul is in the heat of battle, and as Saul is in the heat of the battle, he's been nailed by an archer, but he is not dead. He seems to be dying, and he's fearful of being caught alive and what they'll do to him. So he turns to his armor bearer, the guy you would have hoped would actually have blocked that particular arrow, and he said, hey, why don't you just kill me? Run me through with your sword, because I would rather die from you than I would from the Philistines who would catch me. But the armor bearer was afraid. So what the scripture says, for what it's worth, is it says that Saul fell on his own sword and died. Now, God does not say somebody's speaking that. God says as a narrative, that's what happened. So as I, lead, as I read 1 Samuel 31, I believe that to be the fact that what Saul did was he committed suicide. His armor bearer wouldn't kill him and he killed himself before anyone could get to him so that they wouldn't waterboard him or any of that stuff. With that in mind now, David has been running for 15 years. From the time he was roughly 15 when he takes on in and Saul being the biggest guy until Goliath shows up. You ever wonder why Goliath had to be the guy that actually would start separating the men from the boy here? Because Saul was the tallest guy And so God's like, well, you may be the biggest, but you're not the biggest entirely. You're just the biggest of your crew. And he brings in something bigger. And God does that a lot in our lives, by the way. He brings in something bigger in our lives than we are. So we ultimately realize we can't do this without him. And God brings in his man to do so, which again was a boy. But then from that point for 15 to roughly 30, he's going to spend running for his life because Saul's trying to kill him. He's basically Jason Bourne is kind of the idea here, except he kind of knows who he is. Now, don't miss this then. By chapter 2 then of this book, and now we're almost there, I just want to say this Second Samuel book, we're going to see the news of Saul's death in chapter 1 and David's response to it. That's basically it. Because he and uh, his sons have died, which includes David's best friend. Now, not all of Saul's sons, or as I say, not of Saul's lineage, because Jonathan has a son we're going to meet later, by the way, named Mephibosheth. And uh, David's going to do some pretty awesome things with him. A beautiful, beautiful story we'll run into. But here's what we have then in Second Samuel, the book we're about to start looking at. It will be roughly 40 years. And the reason I know that is it tells us that David became king at age 30. It says that he reigned seven and a half years in the southern area of Judah before he becomes king over all of the tribes. So he only becomes king initially of his own tribe and the tribe that's before him, which, by the way, happens to be the tribe of Saul, for what it's worth. That's the tribe of Benjamin. But then ultimately, after those seven and a half years, he will become king over all of the kingdom, that's all of the tribes, for which then he'll reign a total. Well, he'll die at 70, so he'll reign until then. So if he took the throne at 30 and he dies at 70, how long does he reign? Let me try that again. He took the throne at 30. He dies at 70. How long does he reign? 40 years. Beautiful. Yeah, simple math. Now, those 40 years are what we get then from the beginning of 2 Samuel 2, where he becomes king, to the next book after that, which is 1 Kings chapter 1, and chapter 2, actually, when he hands the crown to Solomon, his son, and dies. So really what we have then is this book covers a span then of roughly 40 years. Does that kind of make sense? We're roughly at about 1,000 B.C., So that takes us about 3,000 years ago. So about 3,000 years ago, David is becoming king. Now I remind you, for the last 15 years-ish, David has been running for his life from this guy who was trying to kill him. But I remind you also that God told us that this was a man after his own heart. So what do you do when your enemy dies? The guy was trying to kill you. And yet, somehow he had been anointed by God to be king prior to you. How do you respond to that? Let me say it this way. How do you respond when another person that claims to be a Christian, or for the most part you might even think is a Christian, starts getting weird on you? Starts doing something really funky? Getting nasty? What do you do? I really think we can learn a lot here from David. Well, take a look at it with me now. So, in essence, 2 Samuel, chapters 2 through 5, he reigns over the southern tribes, chapters Five through ten, then he's really a good king. By chapter eleven through the end of the book, for chapter twenty-three, David will actually make a really huge mistake, a real bad fallen in doing so. He will pay the price for it, so it'll be his fall fallout. So here it is, chapter two, verse one. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul. I remind you that was the king prayer that David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. Now, for those of you who were here studying for Samuel, you know that David had actually did a 16-month backslide with the Philistines, the people who actually fought Israel, who went up, by the way, killing Saul and his, his family. And God pulled David out of it, didn't allow him to fight it. Instead, David went back to the town he was in. David initially, when he handed himself over to the Philistines, handed himself over at Gath. Don't forget that. And then, ultimately, he says, can I just have a little country town somewhere with me and my boys? He's got 600 men and their families. And they give him the town of of Ziklag. David kind of heads to Ziklag. Uh, After lining up, he he finds himself in the lineup to fight against Israel, against Saul. By the way, that would not only be Saul, but that would also be Jonathan, his best friend, who is Saul's son. And, And it would be how strange, and God, in his kindness, pulls David out of the battle. So he doesn't even have a chance to fight that battle and make that mistake. I really do like that, by the way. And it is there then that they come back and find that the Amalekites, don't forget that either, the Amalekites have actually gone and ransacked the area of Ziklag, which, by the way, was where everyone's family was. That means David's wives. That means everyone's family, children, all taken captive and all of their stuff. And everyone wants to kill David for it. David's 600 loyal men now have turned into a lynch mob. David, we read, strengthens himself in the Lord. The word strengthen, in its simplest sense or hardens or commits, we might say it this way, David recommitted himself to the Lord. After 16 months of walking in the camp of the enemy, David recommits himself to the Lord and God restores everything. And yet, as God removed David from the fight that would ultimately kill Saul and kill Jonathan, his, his best friend, David's best friend, I'd like you to think of the kindness of God in this. Because sometimes we really want to jump in the battle because, to be honest, like David, we're fighters. I'm a fighter by nature. I have a hard time. It is an act of God when I keep myself from saying something that I think is really going to put someone in their place when I think they're acting like an idiot. Now, Now, I'm not saying I'm looking and I'm judging someone. Look, you're an idiot. But I mean, when they see something against my Lord and they clearly are speaking in ignorance. You know, I mean, how many people use Jesus's name in public that have no relationship with him? And they use it, you know, nobody bangs their toe and says Buddha. I mean, how that works. And of course, I just want to turn around and say, oh, do you know him? I know him. Can I introduce you? I mean, there's so much I want to say. But think about this, that God had removed David from this battle, though David's a fighter. So that he would not have the innocent blood of Jonathan on his own hands. And there are times, can I say this, there are times where God will pull you out of the battle and tell you, hey, this is not your battle to fight, and you need to get out. The problem is, if you're anything like me, a fighter is also a fixer. So I see something broken, I want to fix it. And there are times where what God does is, he's, you know, when you're asking God, what do I do? What do I do? When you don't hear anything, you ever do that with the Lord? You're asking him, God, what do I do? And I'm waiting for the, you know, maybe the earthquake or a fire or tornado. But then ultimately, at least a still small voice. And I'm not getting anything. And I'm like checking the reception. I'm like on my spiritual antenna. Up. You know, is everything connected right? And then I realize in all of that, God did answer Because the only choice I gave God is, what do I do? And God's response was nothing. That's what I got from God was nothing. Because I realized that was the only thing for me to do. Sometimes is nothing, and that's a really hard thing to hear, if you will not hear. Because if God were to like go jump off that cliff and go fly, I'll you know I'm I'm good with that kind of thing. But when God's like, you need to give me space to let me work, because this is not your battle to fight. Let me ask you, what happens when we jump into a fight that we're not supposed to be a part of? Well, we mess it up and we get hurt ourselves, don't we? You're probably aware of this, that the most dangerous police call, unless it's a terrorist attack that's still an active shooter, are domestic violence calls. And one of the reasons is, when a policeman steps into a situation when there's a domestic squabble, the gal's been beating on her husband, he's been, or the guy's been beating on his partner, or whatever. And they jump in. Let's see, the guy's been violent. They go to arrest the guy. It's quite often that the girl then turns and starts attacking the policeman. Though she wants to be safe from the guy, she still doesn't want him arrested. And you realize, when you jump into a battle like that, you have to realize it may come from any side at that point. And there are times where the Lord says, look at." You're actually going to complicate things by being in it. And I don't need that right now. I need you out of it. Because I'm going to do something and you're not going to understand it, but you'll understand the end. You just won't understand the route. I could see why Jesus told Peter he needed to be awake and praying in the garden. Because if he, and Peter doesn't. And what happens as a result? Jesus is getting arrested, which, by the way, was God's divine will. And Peter jumps up to rescue Jesus. God in the flesh, and he looks at Rocky over here, and he's like, "Uh, Peter, first of all, the guy whacks off an ear with a knife. Now, if you know anything about swords, they tend to work this way. The pointy part goes in first. To whack off an ear, he's clearly, I mean, he's a fisherman. What is he doing? He's filleting someone's head is what he's doing. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says in rough paraphrase, what in the world are you doing? Don't you realize that at any moment I could call down 12 legions of angels? Do you really think that if I real again, this is just paraphrase, do you really think that if I was in trouble, you'd be the first guy I turn to? I mean, if you had the option of calling an angel that, like one that wipes out 85,000 Syrian crack soldiers in the Old Testament, would you call on an angel to jump to your defense or would you call on Rocky? And in the end of it all, I get it. But the point is, is that Peter, again, jumps into something and complicates it. And I'll be honest, that's me. There are times where, and, and, as, and we've watched crazy things happen here where I've asked the Lord on my face and fasting and in prayer, God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? How do, what, how do I handle this? This person's acting mental. This person's being crazy. What do we do? God's like, you need to give me space. And I'm like, mm, that is so contrary to me. He's like, the battle's not yours. This is my battle. And there's so much more to this than you can see. Well, David returns now. As he returns, what's clear and evident is the battle that kills Saul and his sons, David and his men, were nowhere near. And I think in the end, ultimately, David would be thankful for that. And God does constantly try to keep us out of innocent situations, where though we might innocently and ignorantly jump into it, we would still leave bloodshed that God never intended. Second Chronicles twenty, as God speaks ultimately Hezekiah and he tells us, Look at the battle is not yours. The battle's God's. If he needs to use you or if he wants to use you, he'll tell you. But the battle will always be his. And that's one of the isn't that one of the great parts about serving the Lord? Is that you know you're not the commander. You don't actually have to come up with the stratagem that's his job. Now we better pick it up, because that was verse 1. Now on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with clothes torn and dust on his head. Stop. Let me ask you, where did this man come from? Come on, give it to me. It's right here. It should be simple. What is it? Saul's camp. Excellent. The man came from Saul's camp. He came from the camp of Israel. you with me so far? His clothes were torn, dust was on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. That's where he came from. David said to him, well, how did the matter go? Please tell me. Now, I remind you, David is unaware. Saul's dead. We as a reader are aware. David is. David doesn't know. David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. There's fleeing, there's devastation, and clearly there are casualties, including people you love. So David says to the young man who told him, and this is a logical question, well, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? The camp's big, there's a lot of people in the army. Exactly how do you know that those two died? Then the young man told him, said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul, leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And now, <coughs> excuse me, when he looked behind him, he saw me. Called to me, and I answered, "Here I am," as if he couldn't find him. And he said, well, where, well, "Who are you?" And he answered, "I am an Amalekite." So he said to me again, "Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me." So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. No, stop. If you were one of those people that are trying to find fault in the Bible, and there are certainly people that will do that, but have you ever met anyone that's always trying to find an offense in anything you say? And you say, oh, wow, you look nice today. And they say, what, didn't I look nice yesterday? You're like, I was trying to give you a compliment. And you realize sometimes it doesn't matter what you say. And if you say nothing, then you're giving them the silent treatment. You just kind of can't win. Well, the only reason I say that is people like to pick things like this and find them. They say, well, which one was it? The Bible must be untrue. Because in 1 Samuel 31, it says that Saul fell on his sword and died. Here it says that this Amalekite killed him. Which one was it? Well, let me say it this way. 1 Samuel 31, God told us what happened. Here we have an Amalekite who told us what happened. Who do you trust? There's the point. There is a guy in the camp of Israel who comes with the crown and an armband, prostrates himself before David, and in the simplest sense, like, Hey, Davey, I killed the king for you. Huh? Now, what do you think he thinks is going to happen? thinking, oh, well, you know, I think a prince regent would be a good title for you, buddy. Thanks for killing Saul. The problem is, it wasn't David's battle to fight, and he certainly isn't going to reward a guy when David himself had chances to kill Saul, and he didn't himself. David knew that it was God's job. Now, certainly God could use a guy like this. Now, I remind you, David doesn't know that Saul killed himself. The only information David gets is from this Amalekite. The interesting part is, I remind you all the way back in First Samuel 15, God said, "It is time to go after those Amalekites and don't leave one standing," which tells me that whether this guy had any hand in Saul's death, more than likely he might have just tried to stab him after the guy was dead. He certainly got to the crown enough time to give it to get it to David, but he wouldn't even take in credit if the guy wasn't if Saul had done his job. And that's kind of a key point in this. And, Well, Lord, we pray for that guy. Whatever's bothered him, I'm sure it's your Holy Spirit. And we know that you're greater than he is. So, Lord, we pray you get a hold of him. Overcome him. Show him that you love him and you want him. Even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I didn't ask for that to happen, but that was a beautiful example just to kind of help exemplify the point here. Uh, Getting back into our text. This man comes to David expecting a reward. Now instead he's gonna get, to be honest, retribution. But he's gonna come, he comes and he's like, look at, you know, there's two sides of it. It's important to note. On one side of it, he addresses the issue that you shouldn't be killing somebody that God has obviously put in position. That's God's job to do. But the second part of that is, and this is kind of something I don't know if you've even considered, there's an act of mercy he's sort of playing in this. He's kind of going, Saul's in a really bad way. He's suffering greatly. He's going to die anyways. I kind of put him out of his misery. Do you know what we would call that? Assisted suicide. And that becomes a very hot debate today. Where do we really help somebody kill themselves because they're miserable at this point? The problem is, misery is often what brings people to the throne of God. Now, what David does in this is that David's going to respond to this guy who was given this report. But let me ask you something. If you've been running from somebody, I don't know if any of you, please don't even show your hands because that could be weird. But if any of you have had a stalker, somebody that's just, for whatever reason, you the thing. And it doesn't matter whatever you do, you're still the thing to them. And... Imagine such a person wants to kill you, but even worse, that the person has the resources of all of England's metropolitan police, all of the Secret Service. I mean, you're like, I'm not trying to be paranoid. Everyone's just trying to kill me. You know? and, and imagine having all of that, and then the guy finally dies. Is there any part of you that actually finally goes, oh, finally I could sleep tonight? Finally, this is over. But we never find David doing that. Nowhere in any of his Psalms, nowhere in any of the narrative, both here and in the Chronicle letters, nowhere do we find David finally turns to God and goes, God, thank you for killing that guy. What an irritant he is. But I wonder if I would. In a moment like this, would I actually turn and go, oh, God... Thanks. Getting rid of that problem. How do we not do that? Well, it's simple. The one thing David is not focusing on is himself. That becomes the point. The easiest way to celebrate any irritant in your life is to keep your, or celebrate the loss of any irritant in your life, is to focus on you. So the guy, again, tells him. He's, of course... He's claiming credit. Find it interesting for what it's worth. In 1 Samuel 15, what's clear is is that David. I'm sorry, that Saul spares King Agag. Now that may not seem like much. Ultimately, Agag will actually be uh, executed for his, if you will, for his war crimes. But it seems like some of his family has still survived somehow. And I know that because by the time you get to the book of Esther which, by the way, is the next time somebody is determined to extinguish the entirety of the Jewish people. You think that Hitler was the first guy for that? Oh, no, there was other guys to do that way before him, including, by the way, Nero for a time, but also the guy back in Esther 3. Does anyone know the name of the villain, if you will, in the story of Esther? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way to say it is, hey, man, because that's kind of, it's Haman, but it's, hey, man, if you're actually at a Purim celebration, that's where they tell this story. We did it once at our house, served soup afterwards, and our neighbor called the police because they thought we were weird, but we only dressed up the whole bit. They give you these noisemakers, like where you spin them and they make all this noise, because every time you're actually going to say his name, they want to actually just not hear his name. Because, and it tells us, by the way, the the name of the wicked will rot. But for what it's worth, what it tells us, though, in Esther chapter 3, by the way, verse 1, is it tells us that the guy's name was Haman the Agagite. Well, an Agagite means he's from the tribe or the family of Agag. Had Saul not spared the family of Agag, well, what have happened is there would never have been the story of Esther. No, that doesn't mean, well, it's a good thing he spared him. There wouldn't have been, I mean, imagine, it would have been kind of like, well, wouldn't it have been glad, great if Hitler had never been born? I mean, imagine, God can still do great things with horrible events. But it would be really nice if somebody wasn't trying to actually extinguish and terminate, annihilate the entire race of, you know, the, of the Jewish people. Well, there's kind of our idea. Back in our story here, this is an Amalekite. He makes that really clear. He's in the camp of Israel, and yet though he's in the camp of Israel, he's going to go and kill the king. Doesn't sound like a really good move. And then he goes and turns to David, which clear then everyone seems to know David should be king. And he's like, hey, here's the stuff. You should be really happy. So he's brought him here. Notice he says, to my Lord, verse 10. But we do know, again, that God said that David was a man after his own heart. first. Samuel 13, verse 14. And what that tells me is, is that even here, David's going to actually respond in three manners. Three different things he's going to do. What do you do when you see the death of... Let me say it this way. How about the death of a terrorist? You know, when there was a situation, you're probably familiar with San Bernardino not that long ago, where a man opened fire and killed a whole bunch of people. 50 people, I believe, or what it was. And then the police shot him dead. And they sat with a group of people... Who, you know, were obviously quite freaked out by this situation, this gunman killing the 50 people and being shot. But it was fascinating asking them, "Let me ask you, how many people died that day?" They're like, 50 people." I'm like, "No, 50 people didn't die that day. Fifty-one people died that day. So one of them was a terrorist. The sad part is that's 51 people who are going to stand before God in judgment, not 50, but 51. It's just easier to forget the other one because he's the bad guy. And face it, it you know, I was, uh, I'm, I'd was, I'm, i like to think I'm older than you might think I am, but I was raised on revenge movies. There was a season where everything was like they tortured and killed somebody very dear to the guy. By the way, it was always the wife in the 80s. I'm giving myself away here on that. Uh, and then the guy had to kind of buckle up, get himself all ready. And then at the end of the movie, he kind of just killed the guy that did all that. And I just remember even then, before I even knew the Lord, and this is bad, this is really bad, because I don't think he died slow enough. That was kind of my mindset. Is, look, at how For the first half hour, he tortured this guy's wife, and, and, and now you're just going to kill him? The guy should suffer. And then the Lord, once I got saved, the Lord was like, hey, 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 trust me, they will be suffering. What's interesting is if you notice now the movies have moved from a guy's wife being injured for the most part to a guy's daughter, you seen how many movies lately are about the daughter gets kidnapped, the daughter gets abducted, and then the guy has to go and rescue? I find that interesting that it's moved in that direction, for what it's worth. Here's the point. In all of that, we get fed with this idea that revenge is a man's job. And we're going to go, if we're really going to be a good husband, or we're really going to be a good dad, or a decent, upright guy, a noble guy, we get it to him, and we get it to him hard. And I don't see that in David, the guy after God's own heart here. We'll look at how David responds now to the reality that both these men are dead. Saul, Jonathan, and the soldiers that were with him. Verse 11. David, therefore, took hold of his own clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword the first thing that david did is he pined now pined is just a simple word and it means he grieved david genuinely felt pain not because the not because our team lost i mean i've watched some guys and they are just they grieve more over their football team losing a match than they do over losing a friendship with someone who's walking away from the Lord. Now I'm not here to judge, but I'm here to say that's alarming to me. Because in the sight of eternity, with all due respect to football, I just don't think that God's going to go, all right, we were an Arsenal fan, I think I'll take it easy on you. I mean, I just don't see that. But what I do see is it was always about people. And David looks at this, but I noticed it was more than just him having an emotional outburst. First of all, he tore his clothes. Did you notice that? Second of all, he wept and then he mourned. I'm sorry, he mourned and then he wept. And then he fasted. Why is that important? Because if I look at the way that David truly responded, I kind of see that David abandoned four things in this particular moment. One is he abandoned vanity. He tore his clothes. He wasn't going to try to make himself look really good at this moment. Because it wasn't about him. That's the point. Do you know to this day, if you go to a Jewish uh, funeral, that they cover up every reflective surface? Not just the mirrors now. They cover up all of the microwave doors, because usually they reflect, because they don't want you looking at yourself during that time, because it's not about you. Second is that he mourned. And by the way, what that tells us is that he abandoned well, he, he, he abandoned the decorum inside. This was a personal thing. Mourning now is an internal pain. He inside could really feel the pain of this. But then he also wept. He not only abandoned the, you know, so that personal thing inside of him where he was just going to keep that stiff upper lip that we make sure that we do here. But the fact that he wept means that he abandoned the aloneness of a moment like this. And he actually abandoned the decorum of actually pulling himself aside. He actually did this in front of everyone. He let people know he was suffering. And then he fasted, which tells us that he abandoned the ordinary pleasures of his moment because David was really, really genuinely hurt over this. He was pining. And I know, look at our culture tells us to keep a stiff upper lip. and And I'm not asking you to become a blobbering mess every time something happens. But let's face it, we harden our hearts because we don't want to be affected by people, because we don't want to be hurt by somebody being human. And yet, to be honest, sometimes that person needs to know that it hurts. Not that they hurt us, but that, to be honest, first and foremost, that they're walking away from God. Them falling away hurts. Because I could be so caught up in me that the first thing I want to let you know is how you hurt me. But let's face it, when you walk away from the Lord, it's a pretty good possibility you're not going to treat me very well. You're not going to treat anyone very well. You don't even treat yourself very well when you walk away from the Lord. And what if that was our first objective? You look at somebody and you're like, you're making stupid choices. What's wrong with you? But the bottom line is, you know, first and foremost, my concern is over your spiritual health. Because I know this, if you really got right with the Lord, the rest of this is going to work its way out. I mean, you could backslide and learn how to try to hide it better in front of me and try to treat me nicer in it, but I shouldn't think of that as any victory, should you? Bottom line is, I recognize all of these symptoms boil down to one particular diagnosis, and that is that things just must not be right with the Lord in you. I would really, really love you to get that right, because it hurts me watching you walk away from the Lord. So I know the choices you're going to make at a moment like this really hurt people. And they hurt people because you're hurting yourself to do this. You know what I've noticed from this? is, though Saul had declared himself David's enemy, David just somehow refused to make Saul his enemy. Did you notice that? Nowhere does David say, you know what, you're my enemy. And you know, God makes that clear in regards to us and him. Because the book of Romans tells us that when we were enemies in our heart and minds to God, He still sent Jesus to die for us. Could you imagine if God were like, you know what, you're my enemy, you're doing stupid things and you clearly don't want me, so forget it, just go to hell. He had a right to do that, but he didn't. You know why? Because God wanted us to know, this is my heart. My heart is that I want you to be mine, God speaking. And even right now, even though you want to try to hate me and want to do stupid things, open a door and start yelling obscenities, What happens when that becomes part of that guy's testimony? It's like, remember that one day when? Several years ago, we'll go back into the text. Several years ago, we, were, we uh, were in the central coast of California. We had planted a church there, and we we're doing our several services. And, and in one of those particular services, something really weird happened. A the note got slid under the door, and it basically looked like something from Avatar. It was just a bunch of symbols and kooky things. It was like something like someone had invented a language. We had no idea what it was, and there was no, no, no language on it other than these kooky symbols. It was almost like someone, if this makes any sense, just closed their eyes, put wing ding as their font, and just started hitting buttons. It's kind of what it looked like. So we just kind of kept it, and we put it on file anyways. Several years later, we would be out, and we were sharing on the streets, which was fairly common, and we run into this kind of hippie guy, barefoot, it's California, that's fairly common, long hair, the whole bit homeless, and he responds and just says, you know, he's really been far from the Lord, he's had a real problem with what he saw as Christianity uh, from uh, places outside of where he was at the moment, which was our community, and he just did kind of declared a war on Christianity. And But ultimately, he wanted up breaking and realizing that he needed Jesus anyways. And and in all of that, ultimately, he would give his life to Christ. And then he would ultimately be raised up, and the guy would be discipled. And then he became one of our sound men. And as he was, we had several guys that were sound men. And, and I would ultimately sit, and I, we had a meeting with all of our sound men one day. And I'm just like, you know, hey, I just feel like God wants to clear the air, and there's just really cool things that I think God wants to do. And this guy Keone, actually goes, Can I can I clear the air about something? So cheer, he goes, You know, several years ago I came back here I came here because there was clearly things happening and people were really, really happy here and it really bothered me. And it was people were coming from everywhere and they were just so happy. I hated that. So I wrote a curse and I slid it under the door. So the same guy who slid that note under the door gave his life to Christ and then became one of our cellmen all of that to say who knows what's going to happen with this fellow one day now three things i remind you back in our text he pined he genuinely felt grief not because david was just missing them david felt grief because they fell isn't that the truth in it verse 13 tells us our third our second one david said to the young man who told him remember that the amalekite who made up his cool little story where are you from and he answered, I'm the son of an alien. And by that he means not an Israelite, not like he was dropped off from Jupiter. Uh, you know, some people, anyways, uh, an Amalekite. David said, Well, then, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men to him and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your own head. Which, by the way, is a statement that means you are guilty. It's important because, by the way, you'll see that that's what the people cry out as they're saying, as the the multitude says, Release Barabbas. And he says, What should I do with your king? Crucify him. They say, His blood be on us and on our children. And what they're saying is, If this guy is innocent, then let let us be. We're happy to be guilty for it. David says, you confessed that you killed the guy. So you're clearly guilty of this blood. Interestingly enough, I remind you, the guy hadn't killed Saul. But because he made up the story at this point and took the credit for it, David's going to nail him for it. Your blood is on your own head, verse 16, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. So the second thing David does is not only does he pine, but he pronounces judgment. He saw the injustice of someone from the same camp killing the king. Regardless, it wasn't his battle to fight. He's supposed to be on their side. I remind you, he is in that camp. He came from that camp. He wasn't a Philistine trying to kill Saul. He was actually somebody supposed to be supporting Saul and supporting the people. And David took very careful offense to the fact that somebody that was supposed to be part of the camp is busy trying to kill someone, even if that they really wanted was to die. David says there is no acceptable answer for that. There's no excuse for that. You know, we have watched in the last decade men who are very high profile within the church in mass fall publicly from moral failure. Some of which, by the way, we probably, at least in a couple of cases, we deeply respected prior. Because most of it because we were completely unaware of where they were. And we've watched them fall And the question is, at a moment like that, how do we respond? Do we respond by pointing the finger? No, look, there's a big difference between judging a sin and judging a person, if that makes sense. The sin is still a sin. Or do we grieve? There was somebody that I know that both, Haley and I both knew. And they were somebody that was a pastor of a very substantial church, 14,000, 15,000 people. And when ultimately he experienced quite a bit of a moral failure. There were people who just, it was like the bandwagon time. They were so quick to talk about, who does this guy think he is? And he was on Christianity Today. And then he was on CNN. And then it was like amazing. Time Magazine did an article about it. It was like every popular news agent, if you will, wanted to jump in on this because this very high profile character now has been disgraced how do we respond to that? I grieved. I cried. And I'm not a crying type. But I did because I knew that there were 15,000 people that will be showing up to church unaware of the fact that this man that was supposed to be their example had fallen. And because he had fallen, that was 15,000 people who are going to be really, really confused. And not only are they going to be really confused, it was going to give them opportunity to listen to the enemy's accusations. Maybe this isn't real. Maybe this is a big joke. Do we grieve over that stuff? Or do we just kind of look and go, what an idiot? I can't... And to be honest, the people I've learned, the least within what we would call the body of Christ, that were the most vocal against them. I honestly believe we're just people who are jealous of the, the favor God had given him in the first place. They have that many people before them. They were just jealous of the fact because they wish they had a church that size. As if somehow that's going to be something good before God. And I just look at that and I think... The difference is, where's our focus? When our focus is on ourself, we're like, Ah, see, I knew it. I knew you're probably giving out heroin to people or something just to get them to come, that many people. I mean, it's amazing what you want to do with them. First is going, you know, God, please have mercy on that guy. Have mercy on his wife and his children. Have mercy on his pastoral staff. Have mercy on the people who come, who have been blessed who have given their life to Christ through that ministry and are starting to wonder if they really did. Have mercy on the people who want to jump in, and the, the outspoken atheist and antagonist who wants to build a camp and feels like now they have more ammunition to do so. And I'm thinking, God, break our hearts for people like that. Break our hearts with them so much that, to be honest, we would never want to do that ourselves. Well... So David, by the way, pronounces judgment. He is not going to let this guy get away with it. And then takes us to our third thing, of this, and that's how it ends. David lamented with this lamentation, this is verse 17, over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And it says, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow, which is written in the book of Joshua, which, by the way, we don't have. Here's the third thing he does. First, he pines. He genuinely grieves. And after repines, he pronounces judgment. He openly declares that this was a sin, and that is important to note. We never want to be able to to poo-poo the problem, but we want to have compassion for the person, even in the midst of that. But then third, he processes to preach. We have different ways that we process, let's be honest. If all of us, pardon me if this seems like a little bit of a crude uh, example, but because we live in a city, it's pretty hard to get something pretty crazy to happen to us that's isn't that's beyond the normal crazy. Let's be honest, there's a lot of normal crazy we experience. So let's just say we all leave here. This is no prophecy. Praise God for that. But let's say we all leave here, and we're going to go from here, and we're going to we'll find some place to go and grab a bite to eat after this. A bit ironic since we're sitting in a cafe at the moment. But let's say we're all walking. Let's say as we start to walk, some guy walks up to us, and he just opens up his trench coat, and he's wearing nothing underneath. And every one of us, no, I'm kind of guessing that's not a normal event for any of you. It certainly isn't for me. And then the guy just keeps on walking. So that was his moment. From that point on, we're going to have to process that information, each one of us. And we'll do it in different ways. My guess is that someone like Hugo would just start cracking jokes. That's kind of how Hugo is. But we would kind of, and there would be others who would be so tweaked and weirded by that, it would really offend and irritate them because that's not where they're at. But what's interesting is both people are processing the same information, just processing it differently. For, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to get it off of us. Does that make sense? I don't want this in my mind anymore. I don't want this in my mind's eye. I want this off of me. For some people, to be honest, cracking jokes is their way of trying to get it off of them. Other people, they internalize it and they just get all funky. Some people want to go and do something really weird. They want to go get drunk or whatever. I mean, people have different ways of processing it. What happens when someone you love dies? Or let's even go beyond that. What happens when somebody that hates you dies? How do you process that? If you get the focus on yourself, it will be destructive. No matter how you go with it, it's going to be destructive. If you turn that and hand it to the Lord and try to look beyond it, God will help get it off of you, which is what we want, isn't it? Do you know what David does? Well, he's a songwriter. So as a songwriter, he writes a song. But did you notice, it wasn't just that David wrote a song. David wrote a song to teach other people. Did you notice that? The selfish thing for me as a songwriter would be that I'd want to write a song that I can just sit and sit in my room and play over and over and over again. Maybe record and just listen to and just sit there like a sad sad song. And in the essence, it's my pity party, and I've just written my theme song for it. Here's me alone with my pity, and here's the song. Some of you, that may be some kind of art that you draw. And then you stare at This is the picture of what happened when that person broke up with me. This is the person, you know, the moment I found this. I mean, you know, it's like, and we document these things this way. But did you notice David did not take this thing and internalize it? Because if he did, he would never have written the song to teach others. He would have just written the song to try to, in essence, not comfort himself. But David's like, you know what? I really think we need to learn from this. I think we need to learn from this. And yet what I love in this is that David is going to recount that Saul's victories and virtues, but he never points out his faults and failures in this psalm. I think that's interesting. Much like the book of Hebrews for what it's worth. So here it is. David, here's our song to close this. Verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on the high places, on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. I remind you, that's where David had been when he actually wound up inheriting Ziklag, if you will. Proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Gath, by the way, is one of the five capitals of the Philistines. Let, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved. And pleasant in their lives. And in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles and they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. For you have been pleasant to me and your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. And the weapons of war perished. A couple quick thoughts on this as we kind of bring this into prayer. First of all, we see that normally, by the way, the way that something is taught is through comparison and repetition. We actually do that as well contrast comparison in something, for instance, math you normally learn, math you learn by repetition. What is the repeated statement that he uses in this? Does anyone see it? How the mighty have fallen. He's like, you need to recognize this. It doesn't matter how strong you are. We're all going to go down one day. That is something to learn. And David wants us to learn this. Saul would have appeared invincible. I remind you, he was a head and shoulder taller than everyone else in the in the camp of Israel. But he was nothing in comparison to God. He tells us, by the way, that they were dead in the high places, slain on the high places. That's interesting, of course, because the high place is a place of exaltation. And it's important to recognize that that was definitely the life of Saul. He lived on the high places, but he wouldn't humble himself to step off the throne like he should have. I wonder if he had to live through this, had he? But because Saul did not humble himself before God, the enemies of God, if they found this information, they would go mental. They would rejoice over it. And that's what he says, man, don't let this news get out to the Philistine territory because they're going to rejoice all over this. In the same way that looking at the story of that fallen pastor, I'm like, oh God, I don't know how many people are going to read this, but get it out of their head quick. Before the enemies of God, your enemies, choose to build a, a summer home on this information. So let not the enemies rejoice over this. And then he looks at the place, Gilboa, and he says, oh, by the way, remember I, the hill of vanity. And he looks and he says, Man, Don't exalt this place. This place should not be exalted. This was a place where great men died. But you know what we should do instead? Instead of being sad over the fact we lost as a nation, our team lost, weep over the people who fell. Because that's really the issue here. You have no idea how much you were blessed by them. Because they still did stupid things, but God still used them to bless you i.e., for instance, this pastor, people were still very, very blessed by this guy. His word still never returns empty. The gospel is still the power of salvation and his Holy Spirit is still the one that convicts. Scripture makes that clear. God can use a donkey. He certainly can use any human being. Don't hate him. Pray for him. If they're human, a living and fallen here, in a case like this, weep over those who've really fallen like this. And I remind you, this was a man after God's own heart. I can see it here because this is the heart of God. But then we get to these last couple statements, and of course we get to these last couple, and you're aware of the fact people would really love to build these out. Oh, Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. You can imagine where that goes. I remind you in Titus 1, verses 15 and 16, it tells us this. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their consciences are defiled. Defiled means polluted, impure. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So Gaddi says, for a person who's polluted, they're going to see things polluted. To a polluted mind, Nothing is pure. Are you probably aware of that? There's certain people, no matter what you say, it turns into a double entendre to them. It doesn't matter what it is. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This is an awesome day. And they're like, I can't believe you said that. And you're like, what? How in the world did you? I don't even want to know how you took it that way. Or the person that kind of you say something and they're like, ooh, burn. I'm like, I never, what are you talking about? And it's beautiful when you see a pure mind in action. Because they can say things that, you know, that you can kind of look and go, "Uh we had a guy who was homeschooled, really sweet guy, Christian, loved one of the guys who helped plant the work here. And we were talking about the fact that there was a couple and they were always kind of doing crazy stuff. And then the wife got pregnant. And as the wife got pregnant, they kind of settled down and grew up and, you know, kind of took the role of the adult that they needed to for the child. And he turns and he's got a crowd of people and then and he goes, you know, it's all fun and t- games until someone gets pregnant. Now, he totally meant that in an innocent fashion. But there were people, of course, who really took that and ran because that's not where their mind was. And the reason I say that is, is that I can read into this. And if my mind has been perverted by the world around me, I can look at this and go, well, wow, what kind of relationship did David have with Jonathan? But let me point out a couple things. David was not only close with Jonathan. David was also close with Jonathan's sister. Michal, who happened to be Jonathan's sister and David's wife, but by the way, she was no cookie. By First Samuel 18, Dad, that Saul says, "Oh, give her her. Let him marry her. She'll be a snare to him." Well, you can tell that's what Dad thinks of her. She's trouble. By the next chapter, what's clear is, she puts an idol in the bed. Now, where in the world does she have an idol? It isn't like she stopped at, like, idols RS Or went and looked up, you know, Amazon IS for Israel and said, let's, let's find a good idol and can we get it here next day, please? You know, it was, it was a household idol. That means it was one lying around the house. David in, in his wife's house. And she's like, Oh, don't worry about it. And the idol has to be pretty substantial because she puts it in bed, puts goat's hair on the head, and pretends like that's David. Now first of all that tells me David's hair was white. and weird and curly? Oh, that's kinda of bad. Anyways, but you know, and but how big is an idol that, or how small was David? That you could put it in the bed and they oh that's David. And I realized that ultimately, wait till you see what happens when David becomes king and he starts to dance around, Michal has a real problem with him then. And I start to see the difference. You see, what Jonathan had with David was, first of all, he was a faithful friend. He was somebody that no matter what situation David was in, Jonathan, Jonathan was still for him. Second, Jonathan was faithful to God. We never read anywhere that Jonathan whips out an idol anytime he wants. And I could see David looking and going, you know, this is my experience with my wife. This is my experience with the women in my life. And then I see this and I'm like, this is entirely different. When we look at love, we think of romance, but that's kind of weird because you probably still love your dog and your sandwich and you love that great meal. And prayerfully, that doesn't mean the same thing. So love isn't always romantic. But he realizes like, The friends that we were was a better friendship than any of the situations I've had at my home. There was nothing about it where David and Jonathan were making out or they were making plans. But let me say this as well. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation where you really thought you wouldn't live through the night. Sometimes that might be out of an illness. Sometimes that might be out of something like an accident. It's no bragging to say I've been in several of those in my life. Some of them have been those caught in a flash flood. I was in a four—I used to call it a two by four. It was a lifted Toyota truck that was only the back wheel spun, so it was a two by four. And I was—I mean, literally, the whole thing was lifted off, and I was being dragged into the undertow of a river. But by God's grace, obviously, I made it through that. And there was those situations and those moments where you just kind of cry and go, "Lord, if this is it." And I'm not being melodramatic. I just want to make sure we're good, and I want to die close to you. Uh, but then there are other situations where someone's come and pulled a gun on me, put me at point blank, and pulled the trigger. That's a different situation altogether. And when you know someone is literally gunning for you, and you have somebody that's with you that's watching your back, that relationship is a deeper relationship. If you'll pardon me for saying, than something that could be a passing romance. And the reason is because your life depends on it. And the people that you are actually in your hardest moments, those moments when you 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 really feel like you need and not just want someone, and those people, man, that's different. And I look at David and I realize, I mean, David just spent half of his life running. And he looks and he's like you know, of all the people that I trusted that turned me in instead that grasped on me, for all those people that I really thought were going to be something and they didn't, I and mean, you were the one person I could rely on. I, I really just, I could rest on. Do you have anyone like that? And I'm not telling you that, no, that's so, you know, leave your wife for that. I'm certainly not saying that. Prayerfully, to be honest, prayerfully, if you are married, that should be your marriage. And if you're not... When it comes time, if I'm doing premarital, I warn you, you're going to get it. But it wants to be, you need someone that no matter what the situation, and we say it for better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, what do you think that means? It means it doesn't matter what the circumstance is, be it its greatest or its worst. I just know I can rely on you. This is why we do not preach Divorce. Because worse means worse, better or worse. We really want to be at that place where even if the other person isn't going to be that, we as Christians want to be that. We want to be people that someone else would go and saying, this is what real love looks like. You're committed, solid and stable. I just trust in you. I trust my life with you. I don't think David would trust his life with Mikhash but I'm guaranteeing you David would have trusted his life with Jonathan. I think a guy's in this room right now that I trust my life with, that I have complete and absolute faith in. Now, that's not to put pressure on you guys, but don't blow it. But uh, the bottom line is because in the end of it all, and and to be honest, one of the things that's brought us to that place have been some inordinately difficult times. Those difficult times would have either divided us and should have, or brought us together to unite. And to be honest, it could have gone either way. But by God's grace, He united us. And the reason He did it is because He's good. And now we stand here and go, no, we've been in that battle. We know what that looks like. How do you not trust someone like that? How do you not say, Thanks for loving me at a time when it wasn't easy to do. And it certainly wasn't popular. So David, I mean, would have been popular to hang out with David? Would have been popular to be Jason Bourne's girlfriend? She got shot too. Spoiler alert. I mean, you know, it's a dangerous world when you're living that way. And here's the weird part. David was hunted because of his obedience. And because of his disobedience. Because David said yes to the call of God. And then it really got crazy. But in David's obedience and his faithfulness, the whole world gets changed because of it. And our Savior will come from this man. Let me say that with you. In the moments when you'll be tempted to actually feel like you have a right, you're entitled to do something anti-godly, but you stick around anyways and you do what's right. People see the Savior in you and they should. As we go to prayer, this ends with Saul, obviously, in a pretty sad case. We have a dead Amalekite who's taking credit for a crime he didn't do, but he was the one who confessed it. David doesn't know any better, but I think we would learn from that. You're going to kill someone of David's group Even if you didn't, don't take credit for it. That would be foolish. David does not take delight in the death of the wicked. Did we learn that from him? That's exactly what God tells us in Ezekiel. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God did not rejoice when Hitler died. He would have rather that he turned and repented. No. Every person who dies, it tells us it's appointed in the man wants to die and then the judgment. And when you stand before God, what merit do you stand on to be confident you have the relationship that's proper with the living God? God has not asked you to be perfect. That's good news. He's not asked you to be wicked and horrible either. We do that pretty well on our own. But he's asked us to choose our sacrifice. The cover charge at the door is a sacrifice you can choose. So you choose something, but it has to be perfect. So what do you choose? Religious observance, prayer life, charity, kindness, good works. Any of those be perfect for you? If so, you are a better person than I am. But God knew this, so he offered instead his own son, monogenes, of his own gene pool, the only one of his gene pool, who clothed himself in flesh, came as a baby, grew up like a man, just like us. Well, us men, grew up like an adult, like all of us. Whether we behave that way or not. Took upon all of our guilt, though he committed none himself. And then died on a cross. Because that's how you punish that kind of crime. If you took all of the crimes of the world and punished them on one man, that's what you would do. And Jesus knew it and volunteered for it, anyways. So he could be our perfect sacrifice. That's why John would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do we know it was enough? Just as scripture promised, he was buried and on the third day he rose again. Because just like the high priest who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, the Krakashin, offer the sacrifice for their sins on Yom Kippur, we'd know it was accepted if he came out alive again. And in the same way, Jesus went, offered the sacrifice for our sins, and on the third day came out alive again. That's how we know the check cleared. That's how we know that the price was paid and it was accepted. We have no guarantee of that for anyone else. Even if they were to make such a claim, we have no guarantee. Nobody else did that. None of these religious leaders did anything of this sort. Line them all up, which one do you want? And God says, pick your sacrifice. I choose Jesus. And the Bible says, if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus, not his Savior, but his Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the choice you need to make. And that's what it means to accept the gift of Jesus Christ. If you have, my challenge today is that you would join me in a simple prayer and that is, God, give me your heart over people. The fallen, the struggling, and an honest view of myself. But if you're not sure if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer, right where you're at, right where I'm at. At the end I ask you to say amen and what you're saying is I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. And at the end of it all then we can walk out of here confident and expect it that God would open our eyes to the way we should see people. I guess that's our cue to pray. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I want to thank you for this chapter. I want to thank you for what you've taught us in it. I want to thank you for the way you've gone before us in it. I want to thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from David here and a good example. And David will not always be a good example, but he certainly is here. And I want to start by asking your forgiveness for where I would delight in the demise of a person who's antagonistic toward me. and Whether that's somebody who would slip and fall out of a bus that's been nasty to everyone, or worse I know that's not your heart I know that's the world's heart but it's not yours and I want to genuinely grieve not for the purpose of grieving but for the purpose of knowing that my heart is open to feel the pain that you feel over someone falling But I also want to be able to pronounce judgment. I want to be able to to call something what it is and to be able to say sin is sin. I don't want to just be compassionate on an individual but still somehow overlook the sin in such a way that I myself could make myself susceptible to that sin. So, please, please God, may we be tender to the human being without fortifying their sin but calling it what it is. Please. And God, that ultimately we would learn from it and then be using it to teach others if need be. But that we would be further equipped to serve. So, in the simplest sense, God, take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you. And give us your heart and your eyes for people. Your eyes and your heart for the fallen. Struggling in an honest view of ourselves to recognize, but for your grace, we ourselves could find ourselves in stupid places like that, and while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're not sure or you're sure you haven't received the gift of Jesus, I just want to pray this prayer and just listen to it, and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, "Hey, let's get this right right now, and here it is God in heaven. I'm a sinner. Every human being is a sinner and I'm a sinner just like them. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong. I'm certainly not perfect but you've given me the option to choose a sacrifice and I don't stand on my own works, my own prayers, my own good works, my own niceness because none of those are perfect. And I can't just pick and choose from all the different religions the things that I think are nice and somehow benefit me because clearly what that means is I'm still making me the center of my universe. I'm not shopping things to cook, just to be addendums to my lifestyle, but rather tonight. I realize that Jesus died on the cross for me, though tempted in every way, yet without sin, so he could be the perfect sacrifice. Just like Scripture promised, he did it for my sins, was buried. And just like scripture promised, he was raised on the third day. And as he, as he was, you make clear that that was the perfect, acceptable sacrifice. So I choose Jesus. Not just as my payment, but also as my Lord. Asking him to reinvent me now. And lead me forward. To give me your heart. To love people. And to love you as I should. So I'm yours. I may not understand everything, but I understand this. If you really want to pay for me, I'd be a fool to say no. So have me now, I pray. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer today, I ask you to say, Amen. So God, you've heard us tonight. We just want to tell you tonight that as we prepare to head out of here, make us people who really look like you. Which we have to admit, is going to look really weird to the world around us. But it's exactly what they're looking for. So here we are, we're yours for you to glorify yourself through and in us. So here we are, we give ourselves to you do your work now in, in the world in us and also the world around us through it. In Jesus' name. Amen.